You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. So we are joined today by Andrew Plowman, who is a career U.S. Foreign Service officer. His service with the State Department has included assignments to Peru, Panama, Kazakhstan, and Brazil, as well as Washington assignments with the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs and the Economics, Energy, and Business Affairs Bureau. Mr. Plowman is a 1990 graduate of Cornell College in Iowa, where he earned a bachelor's degree in history and international relations, and he obtained a master's of arts from the International Policy Program at Stanford University. He's the author of Climate Change and Conflict Resolution, Lessons from Darfur. Thank you, Andrew, for taking the time to be here today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. So our our listeners may wonder, this is a little bit outside of what we normally do, what does climate change have to do with intelligence? And they also may wonder, what is the museum doing getting in the middle of a political fight? Well, let's start with the first question. We're not. Uh, Climate change is happening whether we attribute it to man or otherwise. Uh, This is not uh, an attempt today to talk about CO2 emissions or cutting back on fossil fuels, it's happening regardless of the reason. And even half of the GOP presidential candidates agree on this issue. And all you have to do is look at some of the basic facts. Global sea level rose about 17 centimeters, and for us Americans, that's over six inches in the last century. The rate in the last decade, however, is nearly double that of the last century. The 20 warmest years on record have occurred since 1981, and 10 of the warmest years occurring in the past 12 years. Both the extent and thickness of Arctic sea ice has declined rapidly over the last several decades, and the Greenland and Antarctic ice sheets have declined in mass. Now let's just address the first question. Why an intelligence museum dealing with climate change? Well, both the Department of Defense and the intelligence community have identified climate change as a major threat to the national security of the United States. I have to do is look at a report that came out recently, and you may be listening to this down the road a couple months, but this came out this week for us here, called Climate Change, a Risk Assessment, that was commissioned by the British Foreign Office, but co-written by leading environmental scientists from all over the world, where they warn that global warming is as threatening as nuclear war. Let that sink in for a second. So now that I've gotten that out of the way, the reason I thought it made sense to talk to you today, Andrew, about why you decided to specifically focus on this topic for your study. Thanks. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, My employer has asked me to point out that I'm speaking on my own behalf, not on behalf of the U.S. government, so I'll start with that. Um, This topic became a bit of a 
an obsession for me, honestly, uh, because of these extreme scenarios that were being uh, thrown around in, in many of the news stories. So I decided to explore the topic myself and try to really understand how this sort of, how the climate changes might actually cause conflicts. Um, and I took advantage of an opportunity to do research at the National Intelligence University and the product of that research, which I did uh, back in 2010, was the, was the book, Climate Change and Conflict Prevention. I think the, the fundamental message of the book, or my, my fundamental findings, were that as climate changes affect human populations, uh, they will cause competition. And in some cases, those competition, that competition can set up tensions and perhaps over time conflict. But as I dug into the matter, it was pretty clear that this would only happen in cases where uh, these, this competition between different groups uh, was occurring in weaker states, in states where governance, uh, the governance frameworks, the institutions, the courts, the planning boards uh, didn't really have the capacity to administer those conflicts. That's how we got to the question of institutions that is one of the, the main themes of this book. So we can potentially look at several different ways that climate change can bring about conflict. So let's take a step back and, and kind of work our way through this. One one thing I find interesting, if you go back to Thomas Malthus, who's a, uh, let's hopefully he's not a prophetic writer, uh, but he focused on the idea of, of scarcity of resources and how populations are growing and there's only so much to go around. Is this idea, this philosophy, something that could potentially be a problem when it comes to climate change? I think not so much. The, there is still a Malthusian uh, strand in the environmental security literature. But when I looked at, the, at what's, out, uh, what's out there in the academic work and in the quantitative studies, it's pretty clear that the, the easy, straight Malthusian uh, equation hasn't been borne up borne out time after time. So it's more a question of the, uh, those sorts of conflicts do occur, though, and it's in those countries where the institutions that, that exist and the governments that are in place, uh, the economic, uh, the level of economic development that they've achieved doesn't allow them to apply some of the modern tools that we have in the U.S., uh, Western Europe, that have allowed us to overcome this resource barrier. Right. You pointed out in the book several other potential issues, things like disruption of precipitation patterns, flooding and drought, impact of agriculture. You know, for some of these countries that are already very poor and already at the very brink of famine, how could rain pattern changes and, and, and issues with agricultural kind of uh, make these problems even worse? Right. And that was one of the... One of the drivers of conflict in the Darfur case study that um, that I looked at, the Darfur uh, experienced a long-term decline in their precipitation beginning in the 1970s. Uh, at the same time, there were a number of governance changes going on um, just because of the, the weakness of the Sudanese state. Um, their their inability to deal with the needs of their population. So when I 
large famine hit in 1981 to 1982 in Darfur, it caused extreme misery. Uh, a lot of, uh, I want to say, low-level violence between different ethnic groups because it forced um, these Arabic nomadic tribes who had previously had well-established routes for, for migrating, uh, to migrate into new areas, which thrust them into conflict with a, a different uh, population group. The, the fur. You, you, you talk about migration in the book, and to me, that this seems like a, a key component to all this. And you even have a, a quote in this, or, or something from your book, where you talk about the areas that might be affected by a sea level rise, assuming there is going to be a sea level rise in the future based on the melting of polar ice caps, is estimated to be about 56 million people. That seems like a, a number that we have to pay attention to. This many people having and being forced to leave their homes and find somewhere else to settle. Right. Um, and that's one of the ways that um, migration is one of the ways that I think um, climate change can uh, cause destabilization across long distances. So uh, these migrants are forced to find somewhere to settle, somewhere else to settle. Uh, some of them will try to settle within their same countries, but some of them will move across borders, uh, sometimes very long distances. Uh, so you had in a couple cases, uh, Tuareg migrants in the Sahel uh, area of Africa moving to Libya. They became radicalized in the 70s and 80s by Gaddafi. Uh, and then they moved back to uh, their homes and began to um, pursue separatist wars there under the influence of uh, Gaddafi's radical ideolo ideology. So it, these things, it, migration can you know, affect events in unpredictable ways. You also talk about loss of livelihoods, about climate change causing people no longer to have uh, any kind of an employment of you know, any reasonable means. And, and that, of course, is a lot, uh, an issue that a lot of people point to as the key reason behind radicalization. You have young men in areas that have no jobs, have no economic futures. Uh, they are very susceptible to radicalization. And then, of course, you might have a situation where a combination of these factors lead to things like failed states, like you saw in Somalia, or, or certainly failed states in the Middle East could be potentially problematic for U.S. foreign policy. Yes, that was, that's the primary focus um, uh, of, my, of my research. And one of the, the primary drivers of what I, in the model that I came up with, for how these conflicts can occur, where we can try to prevent them, because if we uh, if we can interrupt this progression by meeting their needs early on, after their livelihoods are affected, or helping their governments meet meet their needs uh, indirectly, that's a way of kind of stopping this chain before it before it occurs. And, and you would argue, and you do, that we can extrapolate the lessons from Darfur to the rest of the world. Um, you know, and that something to me is uh, a potential real red flag in that, uh, you know, Darfur is something we could ignore. I mean, we shouldn't have ignored it potentially. I mean, we, we it was a, a, a genocide in any other, you know, any way of explaining it. Uh, but it was in an area that, uh, I'm being completely cynical in this case, had no real national security implications for the United States. I mean, long term, it certainly does. But for most Americans, they go, oh, Darfur, not something I'm worried about. 
can we or should we be worried, you know, extrapolating the Darfur lesson to areas of the world where we do consider the United States' national security interest at risk, again, like the Middle East or like Southeast Asia? Right. A series of events that has been, was similar to the Darfur uh, progression is arguably occurring in Syria right now. Um, one of the initial factors behind that conflict was a drought which f set off a famine in northern Syria. Um, the people, people affected by that famine moved to southern Syria. The, the Syrian state was not able to meet their needs. They did not respond to, to the famine in an effective way. And they, they perceived the discontent that was there as um, a threat. So they responded in, in a militarized way um, to, to the riots um, that, that eventually began to occur. Uh, and this was one of the, uh, that was the initial stage in uh, the conflict that we're seeing now. Syria is a case where even because of its strategic, strategic location right next to Iraq and many of the other sources of oil that even some of the realists will admit uh, U.S. policy, U.S. interests are much more directly affected. Some people may not really understand that the, the issue with migration, but you can look and you even bring this up in the book, that there's a, a historical basis that Americans may understand for environmental changes causing migration, and that's the Dust Bowl in the 1930s in the United States. Right. That seems like an apt comparison to me. Right. Um, yeah, I didn't dwell on the U.S. Um, the U.S. Uh, example too long, but it it is one that uh, might resonate for many uh, for many Americans. So one of the scariest things to me, and this is not something that you have in the book, so you can tell me if I'm completely wrong, that the empirical data that you use for your study, that you're actually studying past data. It doesn't seem to take into account the estimates of population growth in the next few decades. So the, the ability of some of these societies to handle migrants, the ability of some of these areas to deal with an increased population, um, in some of these areas didn't deal with it very well. They exploded with violence. I'm imagining when there's even less room for people, say in 20, 30, 40 years, when you have uh, the, the, uh, the real impact of climate change combining with a several billion more people population, how that could kind of come together to be a nightmare scenario for a lot of people. Right. I didn't spend that much time thinking about population growth at the same time. That's true. Um, but I think the the fundamental point that um, you know, the institutions that exist in these countries are the key to understanding how they're going to manage these situations. Um, and it, yeah, increased population, if they're able to put, put these increased populations to work in cities, in states where there are strong institutions, where these increased populations are represented, where they feel they have a stake in the broader, uh, the broader development of their country, um, and where there's a developed market economy that can put them to work in other places. Not just on the not just on the farm where they're the most directly exposed to the effects of climate change. Those are situations where the the effects will be well managed. The effects of climate change will be well managed. But in those states that um, 
where they're not taking those steps and where they don't have these institutional arrangements set up or developed economies, um, then yes, that, that uh, there increases the risk, I think, uh, that increased population will lead to destabilization and perhaps conflict. And in the end of your study, you do present possible ways to, to mitigate the impact of climate change. Uh, things like uh, prevention through adaptation, through institution building. That sounds exactly like what you're talking about here. Right. Um, not so much mitigation, but adaptation. Um, and in a couple of ways. Uh, the there are physical effects of climate change, which we can begin to help people prepare for um, through um, irrigation projects for agriculture, water management projects, um, things of that nature. Um, and then there's institutional strengthening, uh, which I argue in the book will ha also have a conflict prevention effect. So strengthening both the physical adaptability and then the institutional adaptability uh, will go a long way to helping prepare for climate change and reduce the risk that when these change climate changes do happen, that they put force people to compete with each other and get into conflict. And these are all relatively long-term, at least medium-term solutions. Right. Uh, one of the most interesting in, in thinking about it, common sense recommendations that you make in the book was that when there are climate change disasters in the near future, to respond to them quickly. Can you talk a little bit about this idea? In the Darfur case study that I explored, the Sudanese government's failure to respond to a major a major drought that occurred there in 1981 to 82 was one of the first um, first steps in a series of events that led to the the eventual genocide. Um, so, if the Sudanese government had responded to their its people's needs at that point in time, that entire chain of events could have been averted. When people's needs are needs are met, they're not going to go out and riot. It's as simple as that. To do this, to, to pull this off, you have to have information about what's going on. And you actually talk about this idea of compiling better information, of understanding the scenarios, understanding the situation better than right. we did before. To me, I mean, this is the heart of the intelligence question in many cases, is how do we know what's going on? In, yes, intelligence is one aspect of it. Um, there's also been a lot of development in early warning networks uh, created by NGOs and other, other groups that work in the, in the field um, to pass along information about not only climate disasters or other, other you know, famines and other events that are occurring, um, uh, but also violence. So these NGO networks report to, usually to the UN, uh, but our Agency for International Development, USAID, also funds some of these networks and gets some of that information. Do, do you know at all, and this may be outside of your, your expertise, about how technology is being used to try to uh, mitigate some of these these impacts. How the how state or how the U.S. government is using tech, like for instance geospatial intelligence, like satellites. How like, are, are we trying to follow the impact of climate change to predict where there might be conflict? Right. That's a, that is outside of my expertise. Um, I know it's a that is a big area of interest uh, for NASA and NOAA, but um, it's not one right. where I can uh, 
give you any insights. Fair enough. Um, you you focus on what you call inter intermediate level climate change, and this right. is kind of you're kind of taking the average. Uh, what if there is severe climate change? That, that I know it's hypothetical, but how much does your model change? I think um, all of these impacts would be far more severe and much much harder to, man to manage. Um, I, I guess I'm still an optimist. Uh, I'm hopeful that uh, we'll get a deal together that uh, at least keeps us within spitting distance, as it were, of the two degrees Celsius target. So, so that uh, we'll hopefully not see those worst effects. And a, and a final question for those who still are not convinced that this has anything to do with them. Uh, Americans could have gone on their merry, happy way and never thought of Darfur at another time. Uh, Syria, they're being forced to deal with it a little bit. In the future, let's say the next 10, 20 years, how is this going to directly impact an American on a day-to-day -day basis? Through the destabilization of weaker states. And it's been argued, I think, correctly that these ungoverned spaces can have security impacts on the U.S. Um, you know, 9-11 was partially, partially planned um, in, uh, excuse me, in uh, uh, an ungoverned space. Uh, so with globalization, with the advances in technology that are out there, with advances in communication, um, there are fewer places in the world where someone can't reach out and touch us in some sort of destructive way. So this book was written for the National Intelligence University and can be downloaded free on their website, which is ni-u.edu. Once you're there, hit the link NI Press and or search for the title itself. Uh, if you are a government employee, you can actually get a free hard copy from the government printing office uh, or from uh, National Intelligence Press. Or if you're none of those, uh, you can buy one very cheap on Amazon. So, Andrew, thank you for taking the time to be here today. It was a pleasure to have you. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. And we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month.